What a joy it is to be with you again and to um, renew some friendships that I've had over the years just coming here to the church. And uh, this is my first time since the change in directions of the church. And uh, also a few more faces that I'm not used to seeing as well. But anyway, it's just a delight to be with you and I am privileged to be in my son's pulpit to preach the Word of God this morning. Uh, Peter is in my church in Carrollton, Virginia, and um, it's a joy for our people to get to see him again, get to hear him again, and uh, I have the full confidence that as he opens the Word of God, our people will be fed there at Carrollton as well. I'd like you, if you will, to take your Bibles and turn with, to the book of Romans, chapter number 8. Romans chapter number 8. I want to look at two verses, but that is, if you have your Bibles and, and you can turn with me, I would encourage you to do that. Um, a couple of verses in Romans chapter 8. Message is entitled, The Christian's Responsibility Regarding Sin. Um, the theme that I'd really like to focus on uh, goes into the new year for us. And that is simply this, how does the Christian life progress in 2020? What is God's way for the Christian life to progress? How are we going to progress in this upcoming new year? Two verses, Romans 8, verses 12 and 13. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Let us go to the Lord again in prayer. Our great God, we come not as those who have all the answers. We do not come as those who are perfect. We do not come, Lord, as those who are in the know. We come as the people of God who've been redeemed by the grace of God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We come in his name. We come before you, Lord, asking your blessing upon your word the very word that you spoke that brought creation into existence, the very word that you spoke through the gospel in calling forth faith in us and granting to us repentance that we might turn to Christ and embrace him as our lovely Savior and Lord. And Lord, it is through your word that you sanctify your people. And so we come, Lord, asking you to bless now the preaching of the word of God and Father, I'm mindful to, to think of my own son who stands in just a few minutes to preach as well, that you would anoint him with the Spirit of God, and Lord, that these congregations, Lord, would be edified and strengthened all the more to bring glory to God and to proclaim the gospel throughout all the world. For it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. 
Chapter 8 is part of three chapters, chapter 6, chapter 7, and chapter 8 in the book of Romans, where the Apostle Paul has shifted from speaking about justification by faith to now talking about sanctification of the believer. And so in these three chapters, all the way through, you'll find that there is a deep concern for the way that the Christian practically relates to sin. Because, as Paul says, the believer has died to sin in Romans 6 and verse 10. He has exhorted the Christian is to let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. So on the basis of the fact that the Christian is dead to sin, there's a practical ramification of that truth in his life. The Christian has a new relationship to sin. He's dead to it, and it has manifested itself in his walk and manifests itself in his practice. And yet, even though the believer has died to sin, so that sin will have no dominion over him, according to Romans 6.14, he still, as we can see in Romans chapter 7, the believer still has to contend with the reality of indwelling sin. Notice that in chapter 7, this battle that goes on within the, the life of the believer, beginning at verse 18, Paul is writing, he says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find to be a law that when I want to do good, evil lies close at hand. Paul says that the Christian contends with the reality of indwelling sin. And this battle, this reality is true and present no matter what level of spiritual maturity the believer has attained. I want you to keep in mind that as Paul is writing chapter 7 as well as chapter 8, that Paul is writing as an apostle. He's writing as one that had reached great spiritual maturity. In fact, even at that level, he writes this, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So even as a mature apostle, he begins to refer to this inner battle with indwelling sin and with the flesh. So the reality is for us believers is this, that sin will always be an issue with which the Christian must contend. It will always be an issue for which we will have to contend in 2020. The Apostle John had said, if anyone said, I have no sin, he deceives himself, and the truth's not in him. If he says he has not sinned, he makes God a liar, and his word's not in him. So it is something that we will have to contend with. And our text today in Romans 8 and verses 12 and 13 
once again indicates that for the Christian, contending against sin is going to be an issue of great importance. It is an issue, but it is an issue of great significance in the life of the Christian. And so he says in verse 13, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, here it is, you will live. And by that, what Paul is saying is that the Christian's enthusiasm, his vibrancy, his zeal for Christ, his zeal in the Lord, and the, his zeal and passion for the things of God hinges on this matter of dealing with indwelling sin. That the Christian's power in his walk, his spiritual life hangs on this matter. And the Christian's own encouragement and own assurance springs from this matter of how he deals with indwelling sin. All of this is to say that this negative aspect of the Christian sanctification, this putting to death of sin, is a very big deal, and it is the Christian's duty. There is, brothers and sisters, no real progress in the Christian life if this everyday duty is neglected. No real progress. This is, after all, the end of our salvation, isn't it? We are to be a holy people, God's word says. God himself says, you shall be holy for I am holy. The writer of the book of Hebrews also expresses the significance of holiness and he did it in the most absolute terms. He said, strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive for a practical holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And again, Paul explains that this is really Christ's aim for his bride, for his church. When he wrote this in Ephesians, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her so that he might present her to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. So one of these ends here, we see the end of our salvation that Christ is wanting a holy people and he's working in us to present us to himself a holy people without spot, without blemish. And you and I as Christians are to be dealing with this matter in our everyday walk. We are to be striving for holiness without which no one sees the Lord. Furthermore, the apostle in our text here in Romans chapter 8 really emphasizes this same truth <clears throat> concerning the significance of holiness. And he highlights again the negative aspect of the Christian's responsibility regarding sin. He says, by the Spirit, you, Christian, you put to death the deeds of the body. By the Spirit, you do this thing. 
So the scriptures make it clear. Paul, in our passage in Romans chapter 8, makes it clear that this Christian has an obligation regarding sin. He has an obligation, he has a duty, he has a responsibility in regard to his sin. Now the way that this is first presented in in our text is stated, first of all, what the Christian is not obligated to do. And so in verse 12 he says, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. So that the Christian, brothers and sisters, has not an obligation to the flesh. We are not debtors to our corrupt human desires that include ungodly motivations, ungodly appetites, ungodly affections, ungodly purposes, ungodly words, ungodly actions. We are not debtors to the flesh to live after the flesh. We owe nothing to sin. It has done nothing for us but to offer discomfort and destruction and death. We owe nothing to the devil who plotted man's temptation with the result that all mankind was plunged into sin and alienated from God. We owe nothing to the world which ensnares and entices and deceives us to our ruin. So Paul says we owe nothing to the flesh to walk according to the flesh. They, they, the flesh, the devil, sin, they are not our creditors. We do not owe them anything. We are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh. To be so is death. Romans 8 verse 6 says, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. So within this context then of what we are not debtors to, what is implied is that we are, as believers, are obligated to the spirit. The Holy Spirit, all the way through the early part of chapter 8, has really been a major emphasis of Paul. He's mentioned in verse number 2. The Spirit of God is mentioned in verse number 4 and verse 5. He's mentioned again in verse 6. He's mentioned again in verse 9, again in verse 10, again in verse 11, again in verse 13. You think God wants us to pay attention to the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. And he does in our text as well, doesn't he? It is by the Spirit that we are to put to death the deeds of the body. It was the Holy Spirit, after all, if we are indebted to him. It, is, it was the Holy Spirit who brought us from spiritual death to life and regeneration. We were spiritually dead to God. We had no interest in the things of God. We were alienated from God. We were children of wrath. We were sons of disobedience. We were dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2 says. And with all of that, blinded from the glorious gospel of Christ by Satan. And on top of that, we had no desire for the word of God or anything with God. It takes an act of God to bring someone who is spiritually dead to God and the things of God to bring that person to spiritual life. We owe much to the Spirit of God in His work of regeneration. 
It was the Spirit of Christ who convicted us of our sin and opened our eyes to Jesus Christ. He, the Spirit, upon belief in Christ, indwells us and seals us until the day of redemption, Paul says. He leads us to pursue Christ with all of our hearts. We love Him because He, what? First loved us. The Spirit of God progressively conforms us more and more to the likeness of Christ. That is sanctification. He comforts us and encourages us in godliness along the way. And in this context here in Romans 8, it is the Spirit of God and it is to the Spirit that the believer is obligated. We are to live according to the Spirit. We are, as verse 14 says, we are to be led by the Spirit. We are to walk moment by moment under the control of the Spirit of God as evident by our obedience to the Word of the Spirit, the Word of God. All of this is implied. We are not debtors to the flesh, but to the Spirit of God. But the apostle becomes more specific about the Christian's obligation, about our responsibility, doesn't he, in this passage? What specifically is the Christian's obligation here? We, brothers and sisters, have the responsibility to put to death sin, to mortify sin, to put to death the deeds of the body, which is the instrument through which sin expresses itself. To put this in terms of our introduction, we have the obligation to strive for holiness. Our God is holy, and he desires a holy people. We are to strive for holiness. One important thing about this is, and this theme that really runs through this entire section of chapter 8, this, this thing that Paul is asking us to do is something that only the Christian is to do. Paul is writing to Christians. He's writing to Christians at Rome. It is futile for the non-Christian to attempt to be holy. He's dead to God. He has no interest in God. In fact, in this chapter, it's very clear that he cannot please God. In verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. He is hostile to God, verse 7 says, for the mind uh, that is set on the flesh is hostile towards God. That is his natural bent. That is, by the way, our natural bent prior to coming to Jesus Christ. What Paul is exhorting the Christians at Rome to do, the unbeliever cannot do, the non-Christian cannot do, the one who is not saved cannot do these things. It is useless for them to attempt to mortify sin in their life. Every effort will ultimately fail to achieve true holiness. And this is not what God is really calling for the unregenerate to do in the first place. This is a scenario. This is how it can happen, though. Perhaps an unsaved person becomes uncomfortable about some particular sin that dominates his life. His discomfort causes him to look for ways to rid himself of the bondage and the destruction that he experiences. And, 
And so often what he does is he sets himself against this particular sin that is destroying his life and hopes that that will bring him to a place of relative peace. If I can just overcome this thing, he thinks. And so he goes to psychologists and psychiatrists or he goes to friends for counsel and he attacks this, this particular area of his life in hopes to gain a measure of peace. But as I said, that is not what God calls him to do about that particular sin problem. That is not what God is wanting for the unregenerate, merely to clean up the outside of his life. What is it then that God wants for the unsaved? What does he want with the unbeliever that becomes sensitive to a particular sin? What does he want? What does he want that person who now has been made aware of a problem in his life that is destroying his life, what does God want to use that for? You may recall in the book of Acts in chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, the disciples were together and the Spirit of God came and indwelt every believer there. And Peter preached a Spirit-empowered message concerning the gospel of God, didn't he? He preached, to, he preached that the Jesus, that the Jews were partying and crucifying and that had resurrected from the dead was the Christ. He was the Messiah that they were looking for. He was the anointed of God. He was the Jews' Messiah, and through him alone salvation was to be found. After hearing that message, in the power of the Spirit of God, conviction set in and the crowd was cut to the heart, the Scripture says. Their sin was exposed and put on full display. And in desperation, the crowd asked the question, what shall we do? In other words, Peter, what is God's remedy for us in this matter? What do we do? And what Peter replied is crucial to understanding that anyone who is not saved, it is crucial for anyone who is not a Christian. Peter did not say, stop drinking. He did not say, stop cheating on your neighbors. He did not say, stop hating the Romans. He did not say, quit committing adultery. He did not say, cease from bearing false witness. He did not even say, no longer covet. Peter took this moment of the Spirit's convicting ministry to tell about the one thing that God wanted this crowd of unbelievers to know and do. And what was that? What did God want? Peter told them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Peter simply said in a concise form, Turn from your sin. Trust in Jesus Christ to save. Indicate this trust by identifying with Christ and with those who believe in Christ through baptism. And that day about 3,000 souls recognized not that they had a particular sin issue, but that they were sinners at heart. That their sin went beyond an individual particular sin problem, but it went to the very core of who they were, fallen humanity alienated from God. 
And the answer to that was to repent and put trust in Christ in order to be saved. That's what God wants for the unbeliever. Not to clean up some particular sin, although that would be healthy and good if they could overcome a particular thing that is to be able to put that aside and move on in life. But that is not the main problem that the unbeliever has, is it? The main problem is he's separated from God. The main problem is he has no relationship with God. The main problem is he is currently already, John 3 says, under condemnation. The problem is he needs salvation, and that salvation is found only in Christ. The unbeliever cannot put to death his sin, but the unbeliever must acknowledge that he is a sinner and in need of a Savior. He must acknowledge that he needs Jesus Christ. The Christian, on the other hand, is a different matter. Paul is saying that the Christian is obligated to put to death the evil deeds of the body, to put to death the evil deeds of the body, the instrument of sin. And why is he to do that? Paul tells us this is how you, the Christian, will live. This is how the Christian spiritual life thrives, how it progresses. This is how he has energy and power and comfort and peace and blessedness and joy. And this is how he makes progress in the Christian life. Negatively, to put to death the deeds of the body. And without it, without putting to death sin, the Christian grows little. The Christian life is stymied. He is greatly hindered in his Christian walk. His enthusiasm for the Lord is low. His power is undetectable. His comfort is replaced with discomfort. His peace is disturbed. Why? Because he's not taken seriously the responsibility that Paul lays out clearly here in verses 12 and 13 to put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit of God. He's neglected his obligation to be killing his sin. Well, that's pretty hard. I don't know what time I'm supposed to stop. Someone tell me, when does this thing end? It doesn't. Oh, those are not good words at at Carrollton to hear that. Right. But I have another point, so let me get to it. Not only is the Christian obligated to be killing his sin, but here's, here's the wonderful news, brothers and sisters. Because even as I sit here preaching this message, I know this, that every one of you that knows Christ, you're battling with sin. All of us have indwelling sin. It is an issue that we will fight until the day that we go to be with Christ. But here's the good news. The Christian has the ability to mortify sin. The Christian has the ability to put to death sin. 4 verse 13 says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If by the Spirit you, Paul says. Again, the Christian has the responsibility, doesn't he? You do this. But there are wrong ways that 
the Christian can go about this duty of mortification. Some have attempted this work by thinking that it was merely a matter of choice or that self-determination or self-discipline were the way to do it. I'll just be more determined. I will grit my teeth all the more. I'll roll up my sleeves and, and then I'll tackle this issue that's in my life. Others have picked up on the means of grace that God has provided and looked to them as the source for success in this endeavor. And so they've looked to prayer and fasting and, and other deprivations or disciplines to affect the putting to death of sin. And these approaches, however, ultimately fail if the person's dependence for a successful conquest is really upon his or her own efforts and works. It will fail that way. The only way to achieve this work of mortifying sin and the only right way to do it is given in the text. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The only way this duty can be performed is by the Spirit of God who indwells the Christian. Thank God for the indwelling Spirit of God who empowers us and enables us in this work that God has given for us to do in this walk of putting to death the deeds of the body. Thank God for the power of the Spirit of God within, right? When the Christian puts to death his sin by the Spirit, to be sure, there's no passivity on the part of the believer. He is actively involved. If you, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, he has the duty, he has the responsibility, and yet mortification is only successfully accomplished even though the Christian has the obligation, it is only successfully accomplished by the Spirit. Notice yet again, and I emphasize this, it doesn't nullify, the Spirit's work doesn't nullify the believer's responsibility that we're called to do here. Rather, our text indicates that the Christian initiates the activity. If by the Spirit, you. So again, I repeat, there is no passivity on the Christian's part. He's not waiting for some movement of the Spirit of God. He's not spiritually negligent or lazy or indifferent to the things of God. He pours over the Word of the Spirit. He pours over the Word of God. He knows there's power in the Word of God and that the Spirit of God chooses to mainly use His Word to work and effect spiritual growth in the Christian life. And so he's diligent in the use of the means of grace while he's depending upon the Spirit of God. He recognizes the sin that wages war against his soul and, and he shoots, because he takes the initiative, he shoots the first volley to put it to death. He initiates. Will he succeed? Will he succeed? Not in his own strength. Not by gritting his teeth, as I said, and rolling up his sleeve with self-effort. But he can succeed if he follows God's prescription as given here through Paul. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will 
live. This is not talking about earning one's salvation. This is not talking about you will have eternal life. Rather, it is talking about the vibrancy, the energy, the power, the peace, the joy that all goes with life in Christ. It must be done with a dependence upon the Holy Spirit who has been given to indwell the believer and to take on this his work through the Christian's effort. So that the Spirit of God is working through the effort of the believer. How does the Spirit work? How does the Spirit of God work? If we were to try to just take that piece and and go a little deeper into looking at how the Spirit of God works in the Christian's life to effect the mortification of the body, how does he work? Well, first, he makes the Christian aware of his sin. He makes him aware of some sin. It may be an attitude. It may be a disposition. There may be a complaining spirit. It may be some action or some behavior that's wrong. It may be a besetting sin that brings sorrow and grief to the soul. It may be his words or his motivations. A sharp tongue, perhaps. A bitterness of heart. A lustful longing. A desire for personal glory. Each would need to be put to death. It could be spiritual indolence or spiritual neglect or spiritual disinterest or unfaithfulness or unbelief or or disobedience. All of these sins would need to be hacked to pieces. The Spirit makes us aware of some sin problem in our lives. Secondly, the Spirit inspires us as we are led and enabled to behold Christ more accurately, as we see his beauty and his love and his complete giving of himself for our sins on the cross, he being sinless willingly bore our sins and died for us as we see the beauty of the Savior. In Psalm 29, the exhortation is to worship the Lord in the beauty or the splendor of holiness Why? Because Christ is holy, God is holy, and the beauty and splendor of holiness reflects our God and worships Him and points to Him. And so the Spirit of God opens eyes to see His beauty all the more. We're aspired to be holy as He Himself is holy and sinless. Thirdly, the Spirit's tool of choice, as I mentioned earlier, is the truth of God. The truth is found in God's Word. Jesus said in John 17, 17, He said, Sanctify them with Thy truth. Thy Word is truth. Set them apart from sin by Thy truth. Thy Word is truth. Thy Word have I hidden mine heart that I might not sin against Thee. The truth, Jesus says, will set you free in John 8. Fourth, the Spirit empowers us. In our efforts to put to death our sin, we are acting in faith. We are trusting the Spirit to empower us as we mortify the deeds of the body. Our dependence is upon Him. 
Our conscious dependence is upon the work of the indwelling spirit to empower this work which we're commanded and responsible and obligated to do. And so we're trusting in him to do it. You know what that's like? It's like me preaching. I am preaching, but my conscience dependence is upon the Lord in the preaching. I have no idea what the effect will be. I know that he works through his word, and my trust is in him. And that was the apostle's mindset, wasn't it? Not with eloquence, not with wisdom of man, but merely in the dependence upon Christ. And that is how we approach this work of mortification as well. How will you know that mortification is occurring? How will you know that it's working in your life this way? Not this way. Not by a total eradication of our sin, but rather a weakening of it. As we put our sins in a stranglehold, the life of sin slowly eases out of it. There is a weakening of its effects in our lives. The sin may still raise its head or, or tempt us or trouble us, but its domination has been weakened to a significant degree as we, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body. I hesitate on this because I can't answer all the questions around it, but I want to do it anyway and run from all the questions. You remember when Peter, when, when the Lord was saying that he was going to the cross, and you remember Peter was very confident. He always was, wasn't he? Very overconfident. Very self-confident. Lord, I will go with you to death. I will die with you. And you remember what Jesus said in, in Luke? He says, no, you're going to deny me three times before the night's out. Satan desires to sift you as wheat. Of course, that's what happened, right? In John chapter 21, after Peter had denied the Lord and after he wept bitterly over his failure, it is as if the air was let out of his balloon of confidence. And you remember Jesus encounters him, and on three, three different times, three different times on this one conversation, he says, Peter, do you love me? Do you agape me? Do you love me with divine love? Peter says, Lord, you know I love you. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Peter, are you fond of me? And the scriptures says that Peter was grieved that the Lord had asked him the third time, do you love me? And as if Peter were saying, Lord, you know me way better than I know myself. You know I love you. Not as bold to come out and say, absolutely, without a doubt, you know. Yes, the Lord knows. And he knows that every one of us is, everyone, all of us, frail and weak and cannot stand, cannot stand apart from him. For without me, you can do what? Nothing. 
Brothers and sisters, to close, let's remember this. We will not advance in our spiritual walk apart from this work of mortifying the deeds of the body. We will not advance the way that God wants us to. If we fail to recognize the sin within, we apparently are not walking the same path that Paul walked, who as a mature apostle said, O wretched man that I am. His desires far exceeded his performance as is the case with all of ours. If one is without Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God, the message of the Word of God is not cleaning up the sin, but recognizing the heart as sinful before God and recognizing that Jesus Christ alone is the way to be reconciled by God's grace, through faith in him alone, unto salvation. And God would say, today is the day to do that, to turn to him. But Christians, in 2020, by the Spirit, be mortifying the deeds of the body. Oh, how God wants a holy people. where we turn from sin and our heart's full devotion is on Christ Jesus. Let us pray.